0: You are listening to a by the Cycling Podcast. Supported by Super Sapiens, Energy
1: Management for Committed Athletes and Coaches. Well, good evening, Lionel.
2: Good evening, Daniel. the uh, first question is how is the enthusiasm ometer? Is it white hot there in the Berlin Bureau this evening after Well On?
1: Well, for those who didn't listen to our Arrivé on Sunday, I took a solemn vow of enthusiasm, <laughs> undying, emphatic enthusiasm for Well Wallon having completely trashed this race for the last 10 years. Um, and in fact, this was a, a vow that I made earlier in earlier in the season. It was more like a New Year's resolution. And I was going to look look upon this race through a different lens this year and only see the beauty in Fleche Um So, yeah, absolute rip snorter of an addition, Lionel.
2: It struck me watching it that the re- I've been looking at it through the wrong lenses as well, really. What it reminded me of, actually, and we've been there for the Tour de France, it's one of those early stages of the Tour when... There's never any big time gaps. It's just that little intrigue of who's a little bit ahead of who else. You know, oh, Enric Maas was up there. He looked good. Um, oh, Dylan Turns has won and, and has got the yellow jersey, just without the yellow jersey for the.
1: Enric Maas. Enric Maas dropped off Alejandro Valverde at, I think it was 200 metres to go or 250 metres to go. He finished 33 seconds down that is how steep the mud is
2: well he must have more or less stopped pedaling and just uh allowed whatever momentum he had left to carry him over the line i suppose i was going to say we should do the moments of the monument but flesh is not a monument it's just a midweek classic a wednesday afternoon kind of i suppose to keep everybody uh entertained while they're supposed to be at work i suppose although there's always big crowds out in uh hui isn't there watching the race But it was won by Dylan Toynes of Bahrain, well, Bahrain Victorious. Certainly very victorious this afternoon.
1: Do you know what it was, Lionel, today? It was the Ballad of a Thin Man. Famous Dylan song.
2: Very good. You've second been Second Dylan, Dylan in, Second
1: Dylan in, oh, yeah, because I'm not that much of a Dylan aficionado. I had all sorts of song titles lined up for you today. about twist, simple twists of fate. Um, Alejandro Valverde's forever young. The times <laughs> they are a changing with Pogacar not winning. The changing of the guards and so on and so on.
2: Well, yeah, is that a, uh, basically a reference to the fact that it's just a power to wait contest, isn't it, Fleche Wallone? Three times up in the Meur de Hui, the thir- third and final time is the one that decides the winner, of course, and it's all about that timing and... This year, I felt like Dylan Toyns went out and held on rather than sort of, you know, sitting on the shoulder of uh, somebody else and popping round, which often we see. So it wasn't a case of getting the timing wrong or right. He just went out. And he got the job done. He got over the line ahead of Alejandro Valverde, who's on the podium for the ninth time in his career. Ninth and final time, we think.
1: Yeah, it was interesting in the interviews before the race today, I noticed, while well, he was he was asked, as he is asked at every race these days, is this going to be definitively your last season? Um, and he always says, yes, it is. There's no going back. However, I, I saw a an interview earlier today with the former champion, uh, Purito, uh, Rodríguez, who said that, in his opinion, had Valverde won today, um, he would have carried on. Maybe that was why we got that curious moment about, what was it, 40 metres from the finish, 50 metres from the finish, where it looked as though Valverde was going to come round Dylan turns quite easily. And um, it almost looked, from the overhead shot, of course he didn't do this, but it almost looked as though he sort of, um, while well, the brakes went on, maybe fearing um another another year of toil and and suffering as opposed to i don't know what he's got in mind for next year but um yeah maybe he, he knew that he would be condemned he'd be doomed to carry on if he did win
2: well he'll be 42 years old on monday it's his 42nd birthday perhaps uh he has his eyes on liege baston liege on sunday as well he's won here five times before of course And as I said, ninth time on the podium. But yeah, he didn't quite uh, get motoring to get round Dylan Tones, did he? Um, But let's unpick the race a little bit more in the first part of tonight's podcast. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. The Cycling Podcast is sponsored by SuperSapiens, and we'll be hearing a lot more about SuperSapiens during the Giro next month. But if you're still guessing on fueling, and you're not sure what to eat or when to eat to perform as best as possible on the rides that matter, Super Sapiens can help you by optimizing your fueling strategy, by giving you real-time glucose data so you can see how your body reacts to the types of food and the amounts of food and drink that you are consuming. So you have some insights that you can then use to tailor your diet to tweak and improve your performance. And that's because the app gives you personalised analytics. So Super Sapiens can help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more and listen out to the Giro coverage next month to find out how Super Sapiens can help you. Daniel, I said Flesh Wellone is not a monument, and of course it isn't, but it is a very prestigious one-day classic, over 200 kilometres, and it's kind of the... The punchers... Punchers World Championship? Well, I think it's fair to say. It's a bit more than punchers, I think. I think it's more towards the sort of pure end of climbers, really, than just the punchers. Um, although today's winner, well, I mean, he is an excellent climber, isn't he? Dylan Turns has won two of the France stages at Le Grand Bournon and before that La Planche de Bellefille in the past. He's been on the podium at Fleche Wallonne before as well, third in 2017. That was. Uh, One of the years that Valverde won, Dan Martin was second. So that gives you an indication of the Belgian's pedigree. And it was a kind of flesh well-on by numbers, really, wasn't it? I mean, there was the break, Daryl Impey, Bruno Armouray, Jimmy Janssens and Valentin Ferron. And then Simon Carr of EF Education First was making a, a really good fist of getting across. And he did get across with 28 kilometers to go, along with Simon Guglielmi of Arkea, Uh, car pressed on again with Valentin Ferron and they I think the thing that really sort of teed up the finale was the identity of the teams that were chasing behind Geraint Thomas was visible as he always is in those white sunglasses for Ineos Bahrain were on the front Dylan Turn's team of course as well as Israel Premier Tech who were working for Mike Wood so I think was fifth in the end Um, and then there was this really curious moment wasn't there the the three man Cofidis escape I mean Th- what were they doing?
1: Well, I think they were reenacting Gewiss Balance <laughs> um, domination of Fleshwell-On in 1994. Unfortunately, for Confidus, it only lasted about four seconds, didn't it?
2: Indeed, it did. Um, well... Maury van Sevenen who was very prominent in uh, the lockdown edition of Flesh Alone, wasn't he, before crashing on when he was well away, looking very good on the run into the final climb a couple of years ago. Uh, he went away with Remy Rochas of Kofidis very briefly. And then it was Soren Kraut-Anderson of DSM who really put in a strong move, which probably hints more towards the likelihood of him being very prominent on Sunday than the likelihood of him actually winning the race today. But he and Van sevenant were together. Van sevenant basically refused to work or claimed he couldn't work until they got onto the climb. And then he basically tried to attack as he went through, which I don't think Anderson was particularly uh, chuffed with. And then, as you say, Daniel, the uphill cheese roll, the kind of slow motion bunch sprint, um, Enric Mas was doing the lead out work for Valverde. But as I said, Dylan Turns got into the front and was the strongest. I suppose the other notable thing today was that Ade Pogachar punctured with about 40 kilometres to go and had to chase back on and, and didn't look himself on the climb. I mean, it should be a climb absolutely made for him. But uh, perhaps that effort chasing back on uh, took its toll. So Valverde was second to Turns, Alexander Vlasov third, Julian Alaphilippe fourth. Danny Martinez, fifth, and Mike Wood, sixth, actually. A little corrections corner there.
1: Maybe, Lionel, before we go on, I will just default on my vow of enthusiasm for (laughs) um, a a minute or so to explain this slightly pejorative analogy that we've been using for a few years now, the uphill cheese roll. Um, English listeners, English-speaking listeners might be familiar with the it's the Cooper's Hill cheese roll, isn't it? Cooper's Hill is a very steep hill near Gloucester in the sort of um, central west of England. And a, a strange ritual has been happening there for centuries, I think. But it's it's certainly gained a lot of notoriety thanks to TV programs like Trans World Sport in the last decade or two. And this consists of rolling a, a double Gloucester cheese, which is a large round cheese, down this um, impossibly steep hill and um uh, a few brave souls or complete lunatics depending on um how you view it they chase the cheese down the hill which is actually an impossible task because it apparently reaches speeds of 110 kilometres an hour, so they never catch it. But the, the first person who gets to the bottom of the hill in the wake of this cheese um, is declared the winner of the cheese roll. I mean, to, de- to describe it in the way one participant did a few years ago, it's 20 young men. I think there are some women, there are women that take part. I don't think there's any discrimination about gender. But um, he said there are 20 young men chasing a cheese off a cliff and tumbling 200 yards to the bottom where they are scraped up by paramedics and packed off to hospital. Um, I did look at the Palmares of the Cooper's Hill cheese roll um, earlier today and I was slightly alarmed when I looked at the start list f- for Fleshwell On and I saw number 162, Anderson, um, it, but it was Ida Anderson, not Chris Anderson, the 22-time winner of the Cooper's Hill cheese roll. I'd also forgotten about Surin Crow Anderson.
2: 22-times winner. I mean, not even Alejandro Valverde has won Fleshwell Aaron 22 times. <laughs> uh, but it is a race that gets I think one- they have five... Yeah, I think we have five
1: cheese rolls per edition, though. To ah, be fair. is that right? still
2: 22? Is some going, is that right? Um, well, I think that's one thing, though. If if you had uh, multiple editions of Flesh Walloon on the same day, you'd probably get the same result over and over, wouldn't you? That's the kind of nature of the race. And I mean, we've joked about this before about the finish. It is the sort of most predictable race of the year in that it's a long, long time since there was a proper solo win. I think Rick Verbrugger wasn't it Um, around about the turn of the century although that's the one that's lodged in my mind Mario Arts Mario
1: Arts Igor Lower, there, 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 there was a scattering of them yeah. around the sort of turn That's of the right. millennium. And there's been nothing
2: But missing. when you first get into cycling and you see Flesh Wallone and you see this amazing hill, you think this is the most incredible finish to a bike race you could ever have. And then the sort of novelty wears off. The second time is a bit less special. The third time, the fun's worn off. The fourth time, it's a bit meh. The fifth time, it's actually quite irritating. Uh, <laughs> the Sixth time... The the sixth time you start to see the charm again and the seventh time it's back to amazing again and it just goes round in these sort of seven year cycles. Um and do you know what? I think I probably made that exact point last year in the Flesh wallone podcast and the year I think before we all because, do every year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I suppose and, that's part of its charm, isn't it?
1: If you could call it that. I mean, regardless of what the organisers do to change the route, because it would be... You, you might be sort of mistaken in thinking that it's the same exact route every year. It's not. There are various different climbs added. There was the uh, climb brought back into the race this year, the Côte de Churave, um, which was the penultimate climb. And, it you know, quite difficult. And there were, there were high hopes that that would break things up and that would be a bit of a springboard for someone. But never really happens. I mean, you... You, you touched on it earlier. It was—it's always the strength of the teams behind. There are always enough teams who feel that they've got an incentive um, to bring the race back together at the bottom of the Muda hoya. It only takes four or five teams thinking that they have got the guy, and you know that's a, an Alaphilippe, a Mike Woods, a, a Danny M- Martinez, a Pogacar, and you can't really prevent any race from coming back together before the finale if you've got four strong teams who are willing to work Um, it would be the same if it was flat and it was it was um, four sprinters
2: teams absolutely the other thing that that makes it especially so is that that big wide valley road so there's plenty of room for teams to you know compete with one another and we saw that didn't we we saw Ineos on one side of the road Bahrain on the other and of course that's uh, always going to bring things back together having said that the climb itself is fantastic if you're ever over in the Ardennes in Belgium take your bike and have a go I was wondering Daniel have you ever run up it and is there a Strava segment for running there must be
1: I've I've ridden up it but never run up it wow
2: maybe that's an assignment for future yeah. years get d- you to run d- up d- it <laughs>
1: Just to get all all of the negativity out of the way about the Mudahui and Fleche Wallon, um I came up with a, another bad analogy today um, while I was watching. Just uh, you know, thinking about these climbs and the rest of the route, which in itself is really interesting and should be really interesting, the great roads, great little climbs, lots of things can happen there and, and sort of do in a kind of micro um, level, but they don't seem to obviously affect the, the denouement, the, the finale of the race. But just thinking about those climbs... I, and the murder Hui. it's kind of like a Christmas morning and, um, you know, a kid opens his parents' presents. He's unwrapping, I don't know, a Lego police car, a Game Boy game, a Satsuma, a piece of coal. And he's delighted with all of them. And then rich auntie Margaret turns up saying, here's my present. Why don't you open that? And the kid, the kid Julie does so. And it's a Tesla. Um, it, consigns, <laughs> it consigns everything else to total irrelevance. And that's kind of the problem with the murderhoy.
2: It is, isn't it? And you know, all the talk about um, you know the timing and everything—it's—it's it's kind of goes in phases, isn't it? The positioning at the bottom has a huge impact on the the energy spent getting to the top. And although it looks like the things start to open up as it goes around that Z bend, uh, well, it's sort of backwards Z bend, isn't it? Probably an S bend. Um, you, you, I thought today Dylan turns had kind of got it wrong and had gone for the the obvious early move that was clearly going to get caught, but just no one was quite in the right position on the shoulder. Julian Alaphilippe was too far back, so whether or not he had the zip in his legs, he wasn't in a position to unleash. Uh, you know, Vlasov was scrapping to stay on terms. Valverde was looking good but not good enough to come past. And everybody else was just kind of riding up uh, in the same position you know a little bit of jostling for position but once they get round that final bit into the last 200 metres it's it's basically as you were
1: yeah just on Alaphilippe, um Lionel um it did look as though he was out of position or it looked as though he was unlucky in the sense that he was on Pogacar's wheel and Pogacar kind of let the wheel go. And it was kind of like taking a scissors to a pair of scissors to a a rope ladder that they were both on, wasn't it? And um, it it then became difficult for Alaphilippe to come round and get on Vlasov's wheel. That's what I thought watching it. But then in in his interview after the finish, Alaphilippe said that, no, that wasn't the main problem. He just didn't quite have the legs. He also said he was quite relieved um, to get this race out of the way because, well, his Build up to the Ardennes, which are his big objective this year, has been pretty troubled. He had a crash last week at the Brabantse Pale. Um, he had the one in Strade Bianche as well. So he was—he's glad to get the first half of of the Ardennes out of the way, and he still sounded pretty confident about the second half of the Ardennes as well, i.e., Liège-Bastogne-Liège. Which Lionel um, is is also the case. Also applies to Tade Pogacar, who. I suppose some people might be might have been slightly disappointed by today, but he didn't sound too disappointed at the finish. Here he is.
0: I, I pushed myself over the limit. I come to the front row, uh, 200 meters to go. I was, I was, uh, yeah, I was quite excited. I'm here. I can do it. But uh, then the leg hit me, and I it was. Uh, I just uh, <laughs> barely came to the finish, but yeah, it's uh, all good. It's really hard. Uh, they changed a bit the course this year, and it was uh, yeah really tough, but uh, yeah, I'm more looking for, for the Sunday.
2: Does this give a problem for Yesh?
0: No, I, when you think about it, uh, two years ago, <laughs> uh, I was also ninth. It was similar finish style uh, like this year, uh, and then in uh, in the end, in Leish, I was in front group, so yeah, uh, it doesn't,
1: uh, I, I'm full modi- fully motivated for Sunday. Well, Lionel, that was Pogacar. I mean, he pointed out there that um, a couple of years ago, he had a similar experience on the Mudahui. And just watching him today It did get me thinking. I mean, you said earlier that usually in the Mudahui, well, it, it will suit the best climbers. There, ha- there have been riders and there have been punchers. Over the years, who have just never quite got the grips to this um, of this climb, whether it be because of their riding style, the way they prefer to ride or the gears they prefer to ride out of the saddle um, in the saddle, they've never quite cracked it and Pogacha has not looked comfortable on the Um that's the third time today that he's done it and and I just wonder um, I mean the the second time up there. So they went up there three times today. Uh, you know, I, I was watching him closely and he looked incredibly relaxed. He looked like he was just smoking a big Cuban cigar and that he was just going to blitz everyone on the final lap. But it wasn't the case.
2: Now, but it does set it up quite nicely for Sunday. liege Baston liege is a different type of race it doesn't have this same sort of super steep explosive finish quite the opposite these days in fact the run into the town and through the sort of university campus is quite technical and tricky and uh, lends itself to sort of small groups or uh, solo riders um of course last year it pogacar did julian alaphilippe in the sprint didn't he um and I guess, you know, we could be in line to see a, a very similar sort of race on Sunday. I mean, any clues from today's finish that you would carry forward to the weekend?
1: Not really. The, the biggest clue would be the way Pogachar spoke there in the in his interview after the finish. He sounded very confident, very sanguine. I mean, he always does. Almost as sanguine as you were at the weekend, Lionel, um, which I, I pointed out. Yeah. Um, but it is a, it's a different race, isn't it? And, you know, just going back to the nature of the Mudahui, it's a real, it's a knee wrecker, isn't it? You know, watching the, the, the way the guys climb up there. Um, and Liege is a little bit different. The climbs are a bit longer. Certainly the decisive points of the race are are, are different. They're, they're faster climbs. And I, I would say Pogaccio is still very much the... The strong favourite for the weekend. Um, you know, other pointers. There were some other really good performances today from lots of um, Vlasov, uh, Mike Woods. He's always there or thereabouts in in Liege Bastogne Liege as well. Um, Ineos was strong as well. I, I mean, we, we're slightly, I guess, we're slightly disappointed that Primoz Roglic isn't well, wasn't racing today and won't be racing at the weekend because he had that knee problem at the Tour of the Basque Country and he's decided um, not to take part. But Um, I I think we saw pretty much who is going to be at the front end of the race um, at the weekend. Any news, any word on Tom Pidcock and what his issues were, if any, today? Um, He was dropped quite early, certainly earlier than most people would have expected.
2: And pulled out of the race shortly after getting dropped, so did not finish Tom Pidcock. Yeah, it's not been the smoothest of springs for him, has it? Um, No real indication as to what the latest troubles are but just hasn't been himself since that sickness just before Strada Bianca a month or so ago Um, and and Ineos obviously they had Danny Martinez for the climb but as I said he was just sort of in the pack and not able to sort of burst forward from there so yeah interesting and will be interesting to see how Pidcock fares on Sunday I mean it could have been just a sort of precautionary one um, call it quits uh, without uh, slogging up the last climb and uh, regroup for sunday
1: I guess Lionel, before well before we go to our our infiltrator in the peloton, um, his identity will be revealed in a minute. We should just say a little bit more about the winner shouldn 't we um, I said it was a today 's race was the ballad of a thin man that thin man was Dylan turns um, he 's had an absolutely fantastic spring, which has largely gone, I think outside Belgium at least, it's gone, not so much unnoticed but maybe underappreciated Um, he was riding Paris-Roubaix at the weekend although he said that was mainly with a view to the Tour de France stage in the summer, but 8th in the Brabant-Sapil, 10th in Amstel Gold, 6th in the Tour of Flanders and he, he has been for a few years now a bit of an anomaly we talked about Mohoric at the weekend being a bit of an anomaly and um, Turns is in the sense that he's equally at home on the Cobbles and in the Ardennes um, he's a rider that blows quite hot and cold I would say um, he's had some absolutely fantastic periods over the years and a lot of people will remember, or it was certainly a, a memorable performance um, at the Tour de France last year at Le Grand Bournon. Um, and the, one of the curious things about that victory on the day when Pogacar really sort of won the Tour de France or became the, the winner-elect of the Tour de France, um, was that Turns had, had just learned that he wasn't going to be picked for the Belgian team um, for the Olympic Games in Tokyo.
2: Yeah, just on riders who are very good on the cobbles and in the Ardennes-type classics. I mean, there's plenty of people who are good at both, but not many put together a full campaign, do they? Uh, I suppose Pogacar this year has done, because he did the Tour of Flanders and uh Duas d'Or Vlander, and didn't he? Uh, Tiesse Benut has basically been there or thereabouts in just about everything since uh, the start of the classics. Um, but yeah, Turns is one of those riders, you know, very much sort of in the... The centre of the Venn diagram of you know Grand Tour stage winner slash climber, cobbled rider, and uh, punchy. Well, you've you've called it the Puncher's race. I mean, he's proved it today. Um, no, stars and not keep really? no stars in Le Too many of those. Really? No stars in Keep, Yeah. Wow. Wow. The, the the star key must have been stuck or disabled or something because you'd have given him one star surely. I'm um, I'm buying Le Parisien from now on. Yeah, I, well,
1: I mentioned we had an inside man today at Flesh Well On, um, Larry Warbass, lucky Larry, friend, long long term or long serving correspondent and friend of the podcast, um, former American champion, AG2R Citroën rider, was riding today mainly in the hope that Benoit Cosnefroid would win Flesh On or certainly finish um, high up and um, possibly on the podium. Didn't quite happen for Cosneau despite a very good performance by AG2R generally they really got him into a nice position at the bottom of the Meur de Huy. anyway this was Larry lucky Larry's dispatch from Belgium shortly after the race
0: hey guys uh, this is Larry Warbass uh, <clears throat> I ride for the AG2R Citroën team and yeah um, just a <clears throat> little brief uh, recap of uh, Fleche Wallonne So, we're on the bus, uh, going back to the hotel now. Um, Was an okay day, Uh, you know, our goal was really to win the race today with Benoit, um, but unfortunately he didn't have the legs in the end, but, you know, we did our best to put him in the best uh, position possible. So, for me that meant um, working, uh, yeah, essentially up until the circuit and then, yeah, as long as I could on the circuit, so, yeah, I made it, uh, you know, positioning the guys uh, until the second time uh, up the Mir de And then, uh, yeah, that was a uh, day done for me and I was just grouped out for the rest of the day. But yeah, unfortunately, yeah, then lined up, uh, I think, 13th. So not what we were hoping for, but uh, he did his best and uh, we did our best for him. So that's all uh, all we can ask for. But yeah, it was, uh, it was a hard day. Um, you know, we were watching uh, the breaks at the start and <clears throat> in the last races, like uh, amsterdam appeal um the breakaway went within like <sighs> five minutes, ten minutes max. So, yeah, uh, we kind of, well, personally, I expected the same thing today, but actually it was a really big fight and uh, it was really, really hard at the start. So uh, there was a couple climbs and like we went up these climbs like full, full, full gas. So. Um, yeah everyone was suffering and then it ended up we had a quite a strong breakaway so uh uae started riding super hard right away um and then yeah they kept him on a pretty short leash, and then um yeah we, <laughs> we went hard pretty much uh the whole day so um so yeah uh daniel and i had a little uh, discussion this morning and i thought that maybe um you know, it was gonna be full gas attacking on the circuit in a different uh scenario than normal um you know maybe like 15 guys at the bottom but yeah that didn't happen and uh he was right it it ended up uh happening like normal so um yeah i don't know i guess uh I thought that maybe just the way that we've been racing this year, um, when you watch Roubaix or Amstel, you know, guys were attacking like 120k out um, and not like uh, just token attacks. So, um, so yeah, I kind of uh, expected the same today, but uh, I guess it sort of developed as normal and maybe it was just because, uh, you know, like a lot of the leaders' teams, they're really confident in uh, their guys for the finish. So you know, UAE for Pogachar and um, you know Quick Step for Alaphilippe. So um, yeah, us for Benoit. Um, so yeah, it's ended up same shit, different year. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it was a pretty hard day. Um, so that's pretty much uh, everything that happened. Uh, you know, pretty pretty basic standard uh, racing, and uh, and yeah, I didn't really see the finish, but uh, looks like Dylan Toons was strong, so I'll have to watch the recap later. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, it'll be on to Sunday now, Liege On Liege, and uh, we're gonna hope for a better result there. So yeah, that's that's it uh, for today, and yeah, just a small note. Uh, <coughs> I just wanted to say. Uh, you know, uh, that, uh, I hope everyone's doing okay after uh, the loss of Richard Moore, uh, you know, he was really, really a good guy, and <clears throat> I really, uh, I'll miss seeing him at the races because he was such a, yeah, pleasant, uh, face, and for me, he was more than, you know, a journalist or a podcaster, uh, you know, I really, uh, for me, he was a friend, and, um, uh, You know, it was always so nice uh, to have a friendly face and guy to chat to uh, after uh, all the races. And uh, I'm really, really going to miss that. And, uh, yeah, I hope uh, (coughs) all you guys are are well and, uh, yeah, stay strong and, uh, yeah, just send my best uh, to everyone in the Cycling Podcast and to Richard's family. And, and, yeah, so that's it for today and uh, hope everyone's all good. Ciao.
2: Well, some lovely words there from Larry Warbass about Richard Moore, our colleague who passed away a few weeks ago now. And, I mean, it still feels like it was yesterday, really. We are uh, continuing on with the podcast with these episodes of Arrivé. We'll perhaps talk a little bit more, Daniel and I, about our plans for the upcoming weeks in uh, the the end part of this podcast. But after this little commercial message, which is coming up, it's Lizzie Banks and me talking about the women's edition of Flesh Well The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the Cycling Podcast. They've been supporting us since the 2016 Giro d'Italia and we're very grateful for that long-standing support. And I'm very grateful to Science in Sport because they helped fuel my ride in Scotland recently. I consumed a lot of science in sport food and drink over the nine days I was riding. And one of the things that I've really realized when doing back-to-back rides of sort of four or five hours, and especially because we were out for a lot longer than that, because we were visiting all of the football grounds, burning energy just standing around, I guess, I fueled more effectively by using the beta fuel drink. And it meant that I was consuming calories little and often all through the day rather than feeling that I had to consume all my calories through eating solid food and digesting it. And uh, it was quite reassuring, actually, day by day, knowing that I was fueling effectively by drinking my calories instead of eating them. If you'd like to get 25% off all Science in Sport products, you can go to scienceinsport.com and use the code SISCP25. Before we hear from Lizzie Banks about the women's edition of Flesh Will Own today, I'd also just like to say a big thank you to MAP, the clothing company who came on board to support the Cycling Podcast and work with the Cycling Podcast at the start of this year. Now we had some plans in place, and for understandable reasons we've just put those plans on hold for the time being, but we're looking forward to working closely with MAP in the coming weeks and months. I was wearing MAPS clothing while I was in Scotland, and the weather was quite cold and damp at times, as you might expect in Scotland at this time of year, but the MAP clothing kept me toasty warm and dry. I was particularly impressed with the two different weights of bib tights I had. I chose the The thermal tights on the really cold days and then the slightly lighter weight ones were perfect for the sort of more spring-like days. And now that the weather has improved down here in the south of England where I live, I've been getting to grips with some of the lighter weight clothing for sort of spring and early summer conditions. And I've been equally impressed with that too. Really lovely clothing to wear. If you'd like to find out more about MAP, go to MAP.cc. That's M-A-A-P.cc. I'm now joined by Lizzie Banks and we've watched the 25th edition of Flesh well Own for Women. And well, one thing we knew this morning, Lizzie, was that there would be, in all likelihood, a new winner standing on the top step of the podium, mainly because Anna van der Bregen, who's won the last seven editions, is no longer in the peloton. She's retired and is now working as a sports director.
3: I was going to say, technically, Lionel, she was in the peloton. Well, I guess not.
2: Well, technically, <laughs> Lizzie, she was, she was behind the peloton.
3: I thought you were going to say she wasn't in the race, and I was I was going to butt in with, well, technically, Lionel, she was in the race, and then you snuck in the word peloton there. So uh, oh, no. the now it's me that looks like the idiot. Corrections,
2: corrections <laughs> Corner should wait for the end of the sentence before deciding whether to intervene with a yellow card. But no, no Anna van der Breggen. And so we were going into the unknown somewhat, and... Well, I thought it was an absolutely terrific race. The winner was Marta Cavalli, the Italian who won the Amstel Gold race a couple of weeks ago and was fifth at Paris-Roubaix at the weekend. And well, to me, it looked like a victory for patience, timing and confidence because she rode on the wheel of Annemiek van Vleuten all the way up the Mur de Huy, the final time, picked her moment to perfection and just came past, you know, did just enough to win it. And that's all you need to do, isn't it?
3: We've seen so many times over the years, those riders that have accelerated a little bit too early or particularly Kashia nibi who unfortunately had a a bad leg day today, um, often has just accelerated that little bit too early blown up a bit and then been beaten by the Queen of the Muir, Anna van der Brecken. But yeah, I mean, it was certainly FDJ's day-to-day. It's a team that's been significantly bolstered with unbridled talent in the past few years. But with the new route this year, meaning an extra lap of the finishing circuit and a much harder finale, it posed a bit of a challenge. They were unrepresented in the strong breakaway that was holding a stable two-minute gap and with a lot of strong riders in there. And still with 1 minute 30 at 25 kilometres to go and coming into the Côte d'oref they really had to send in the cavalry. Otherwise, they were going to be shutting the door after the horse had vaulted. But Brodie Chapman, my rider of the day, she was there to rein in the escapees to within a furlong or two, and when it came to that final climb up the muir, horsepower was not a problem for Marta Cavalli, cantering up the climb on the tail of Annemiek van Vluten. Van Vluten clearly had the bit between her teeth. She attacked early, a bit too early, and opened up a gap, but Cavalli perfectly bided her time, slowly reining her in, only to give her the hoof in the home stretch.
2: Goodness me. Well,
3: Lionel... You know, some may have thought Cavalli was a dark horse before Amstel Gold, but and SD Works, of course, had also been used to getting a shoe in for the past seven years. But it's no longer a one-horse race, and they had to settle for third place today.
2: Goodness me, how many horse-related puns was that? And <laughs> and can you can you explain the origin for those who who uh, you know? I'm sure everyone has cottoned on by now.
3: <laughs> what? I mean, I, I I lost count after I think thirteen or fourteen, but well, cavalli, of course, meaning horses in Italian, and inspiring uh, a nice run of punditry there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> indeed I mean it was a thoroughbred performance wasn't it did you did you say that one I I lost count certainly but it was <laughs> um and as I say it was it was all in the timing at the finish wasn't it but you mentioned the strength of the riders in the break and I wondered whether you thought that was because of the beefed up course the first time that the women have ridden the Mur de Huy three times in Flesh Wallone and also the reintroduction of um the Cote de Chirave climb as well which made that circuit just that extra bit tougher
3: yeah, so the Cote de Chirève has actually been out for the past two years. Last time it was um, in was in 2019, because there's been huge roadworks uh, leading up to it, which meant that they um, went up a different climb that was quite a bit further from the finish. And the top of the Cote de Chirève is only five kilometres from the finish. But not only that, like you say, Lionel, it's, it's now a lot, lot harder. But actually, interestingly enough, um, I don't think it's changed the women's race that much. Actually, last year it very nearly was run won by an escapee, Ruth Winder, who was only brought back right at the bottom of the final climb up the Muir, and still managed to hang on for a top ten. That's how close they were to not bringing her back. And in previous years as well, it's often either split or or really yeah formed into to smaller groups after the Muir because there's a really exposed section there that's that's very. Um, prone to, to strong crosswinds. And I think it was the year before there that there was a strong breakaway as well. So it's not something that we've not seen before, but it's definitely something that prior to this race, I flagged up as this is a real opportunity for the breakaway here. And with the likes of Elise Shabby, Elena Anushka Anushka Kosta, Leia Thomas, it's not really a breakaway that you wanted to give that much time. Um, And Movistar did have a rider in there, Yelena Erich, but they realised she wasn't going to win from that situation. Um, SD Works also had Anna Shackley in there, who, again, they're not really going to back Anna Shackley when they've got the likes of Mormon Passio and Demi Vollering in the group behind. So they had a bit of a tricky situation, especially when Ashley Mormon Passio had a mechanical and a bike change with about 25 kilometres to go uh, just before the run into the Cote d'Ref. And um, they had Anna Shackley up the road and they had Brodie Chapman pulling like, there's no tomorrow on the front for FTJ with Neve Fisher-Black on her wheel and and trying to kind of slow that chase down. And meanwhile, Chantal Vandenberg-Black has, had gone back to bring Ashley Mormon Passio back to the front. So it was all, yeah, it was a really, a very exciting race and... And it was really only the work by Brady Chapman where she was on the front for about 20 kilometres to bring the break down to within a 10-second gap at the bottom of the, the Cote de Chirave, um at seven kilometres to go when, you know, you you knew that, OK, we're in for the inevitable up the final climb of the, M- the Muir. But, of course, it wasn't the inevitable because Anna van der Breggen wasn't there.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that FDJ didn't have a rider in that break and yet... They obviously won the race. They did take control, didn't they, of, of that chase. Um, but I wondered if that was significant.
3: I think, so the thing about FTJ is they've been going from strength to strength over the past few years. And Cecilia at missed both Amstel Gold and Flash Wallon due to COVID. And I really feel that Cavalli has had a bit of a leg up from her absence and the sole leadership that's come with it. And so now they do have that, faith in her and yes they they missed a trick by not having somebody in the break but having said that Elena Erich had to come back from the break in order to help movistar pull it back so okay you could put somebody in the break but if you have complete 100 percent faith in your leader who's in the bunch then you need those riders to protect her and to bring that gap down when the time comes if another team hasn't done it for you
2: yeah, you mentioned Ashley moorman Pasio there, who, one of the best climbers in the world, isn't she? But a really badly timed mechanical problem and a lot of catching up to do, which must have, um, you know, taken its toll when trying to sprint up the de hui in the final kilometre.
3: Absolutely. Her team car was actually stuck behind a second group on the road that had split on a small rise before the Côte F. And so it took quite a long time for the car to get to her. And then she had quite a significant chase back and then had to go up the Côte d'Airef. But I mean, she was the one that put in a big attack on the Côte So she must have been in really fine form to have done that and come forth today. So it's one of those what ifs, but it's bike racing and you, you can't say what if because bad things happen.
2: <laughs> what did you make of Van Vluten then? Because, you know, she was in front until the point where it really mattered to be in front.
3: Yeah, it's a tough one because obviously Van Vluten has been so dominant in the past. But I think that she's just as good as she ever was. But the level in the peloton has just increased across the board. You know, We always expected SD works to be strong once Trek Segafredo came in with their team you Know they became stronger and stronger, but now it's not just a three horse race. There are riders in strong teams, ac- strong riders in strong teams across the board who can make the difference. And there's probably 10 riders at the start of this race today that you could have said, Well, we don't really know who's going to take this on the climb. Liana Lippert, Mormon Pasio, Vollering, Annamiek van Vleuten, Cavalli, Elisa Longa Borghini, Nivea Doma. Um, and yeah, it's just how you time it on the climb. She did attack kind of, yeah, I'd say two thirds of the way up and try and shake them off her wheel because it's it's a mental game as well. You know, quite often on that climb, if, you, if you've if you got the gap, you look back and see if there's anyone behind you and oh, you kind of crack a little bit. And yeah, okay, well, I'll just hold this position. I'm not going to get back to her now. And it seems like that's what she tried to do. Um, but that group of Cavalli, I think it was Cavalli, Lipper Vollering, just... Did not give up. They just kept going at it. And once it was about two hundred meters to go, and they were still together, I thought, well, she's surely Cavalli has got it now because she's really got that kick. And she hadn't, importantly, Cavalli hadn't used her kick during the climb of the Muir. annamika done it once or twice, and to, to have a third kick on a climb like that is impossible. You know, if you watch Anna Van der Breggen up there, she goes, a, she goes. She measures her effort perfectly. She chooses the rate that she's going to ride at and that she can do her best four-minute effort at, and she does it, and she knows her body so well. And perhaps that's the mistake that Annemiek did today. She, Well, perhaps it wasn't a mistake. Perhaps Cavalli was just better. But Cavalli really measured her effort to save that kick till the end, and I think, uh, yeah. Think that's why she
2: won it's funny isn't it because you know the temptation to just go too early must be so overwhelming actually staying cool and just sitting on the shoulder until the very last minute it so often works um but knowing that that's what the smart tactic is and actually executing that when, you know, the, the the pulse must be absolutely beating in the temples is is another thing. Uh, talking of the pulse beating in the temples, I thought the most powerful looking ride was Demi Vollering. Probably um I mean a huge talent, of course, a fine string of results, second at Amstel Gold, one Brabant Pale. of course a defending champion of Liège Baston Liège, which is on Sunday, but perhaps the Murderhuis um, you know she's more of a kind of power rider um, than you know uh, than suits the steepness of that climb perhaps I don't know
3: yeah she's such a powerful rider and she's a rider that can really do anything we've seen her sprint um, you know we saw her that's how she won uh, Liege best on Liege last year of course after a, a sprint from a small group where Anna van der Breggen had had uh, done the leg work after she'd done the leg work for Anna reeling in Ruth Winder just a few days before Uh, in Flesh Wallon in 2021. But, yeah, I don't know. It's something about this climb. You just have to time that effort absolutely perfectly. And um, she was third here, of course, back in 2020. And, you know, she's not managed to time it perfectly yet. But I... You know, I would not be surprised to see Demi Vollering as a winner here in the future.
2: Or what about on Sunday? But I uh, don't really indulge in speculation, Lizzie. We'll have to talk about that on Sunday if you're able to.
3: We will have to talk about that on Sunday. It's going to be another phenomenal day of racing.
2: Well, good news that Lizzie Banks will be on Cycling Podcast Duty on Sunday for liege Baston liege We'll be back with a very similar podcast to this one. We'll talk about the, the men's race, Daniel and I, and Lizzie and I will talk about the women's race. And then... We will take a week's break from the regular cycling podcast before we gear up for the Giro d'Italia, Daniel.
1: Yes, we will, Lionel. Um, We are, of course, going to the the Giro again this year. You will be on duty with me in Hungary and um, you'll be staying with me in the south of Italy, in Sicily, and then as we move up the peninsula. And then you'll be handing the baton over to Brian Nygaard, our friend um, Brian Um, very very illustrious figure in professional cycling isn't he very distinguished figure in professional cycling former team manager of leopard trek former press officer of um, Team Sky, or communications chief i'm sure he was called not the mere press officer orica green edge team csc Um, anyway brian will be with me and he'll be overlapping with you for a few days as well for the second half of the race which we very much look forward to
2: Indeed. And um, lots of people have been sending us emails and messages on social media. And once again, thank you to everyone for so many kind words of condolence um, to us and your thoughts about Richard as well. Um, it's been very touching to read the messages as they come in. We're sorry we can't reply to everybody um, because the, the sheer volume of messages is, is really quite staggering and I think that just shows how Richard connected with so many listeners and um, it's been really heartwarming to uh, recognize that over the last couple of weeks and it's I think it's helped us hasn't it Daniel?
1: Yeah it has definitely Lionel and um, you know not just in the volume of the of the messages but the nature of some of the messages very very personal um, very very honest and transparent about you know what Richard meant to certain listeners and what the podcast has meant to them I mean, you know we're incredibly humbled um, and and we're amazed to hear sometimes the impact the, the podcast has, has had and obviously that's a huge part of Richard's legacy which um, uh, I've said it before and we've said it before but we'll say it again we're very determined to honor and carry forward over the coming weeks and months um, we're not exactly sure yet um, what form that will will take at certain times of the year, we're sort of working that out at the moment, but certainly we have we have our plan established um until the Giro d'Italia and um as I said before, we're very much looking forward to getting to Hungary and then Italy. Yeah,
2: I think one of the things that's become really apparent that perhaps I even took for granted, perhaps being just too close to it, was just the strength of the family that Richard was instrumental in building up around the cycling podcast. The other Um, The other hosts that have come on board, not just for the regular cycling podcast, but for Service Course and the cycling podcast Feminine, both of which will be returning soon as well. And um, we will draw on that strength over the coming weeks and months as we establish a way forward. I mean, nothing will ever be quite the same again without Richard. And as we said on Sunday, his absence will be felt as we travel around covering the races. And whenever there's a great race, it's going to... You know, the, the sting will be there that that Richard's missing it. But we will continue as the cycling podcast and we will uh, we will find our way over the next few weeks and months.
1: We will, Lionel, and Richard would have chastised us again today for casting aspersions on the entertainment levels offered up by Flesh Will On, which we didn't really do. I think I I think I I held pretty good to my I, I pretty much honored my vow of enthusiasm towards fleshwell on.
2: indeed well I think Sunday's race Liege Bastogne Liege there's no such challenges there it's a much more well it's a, it's a, a bigger event it's one of the oldest and most prestigious classics it really is a monument and there's a lot more to it and certainly looking forward to seeing how it plays out and we'll be back again on Sunday Daniel to discuss the 2022 edition of Liege Bastogne Liege so until then thank you very much
1: thank you Lionel The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib
0: and Lionel Burney.